Well, last week we started kind of a two-part thing of Jesus on trial. And so last week we saw the religious trial and he was condemned by the religious leaders of blasphemy. And today we're going to see his civil trial. And this is going to sound a lot more like what we are know as a sentencing, right? You're guilty. Now here's your punishment. And so last week we asked, who is Jesus and what are the implications of that in our lives? And today we're going to ask, what do we do with Jesus, right? Once we know who he is, how do we respond? And our theme for the book of Mark is the journey of discipleship. And so Mark is giving us throughout his book a clear picture of who Jesus is and how we can respond as faithful disciples. So often in the book of Mark, we've seen this happens in negative examples, right? What not to do. Um, And we're going to see more of those today. We're going to see more things not to do, um, but we're going to use those to help us learn and to see how we should respond instead of that way. Um, Because, for example, we've already seen the disciples just a couple of weeks ago who said, we'll never leave him, we'll never fall away. When Jesus was arrested, they all ran away. And so that's a negative example. That's not what we should be doing. We should be sticking with Jesus no matter what comes our way. So we have to overcome that fear. And so we're going to see more of those today, but we're going to see how we can respond. So we're going to be in Mark 15, um, chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And so it's page 904 um, if you are following along in the Pew Bible, or you can go through our Brentwood Bible app and get to the verses there. Um, So we're going to be chapter 15, 1 through 20. So here we go. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things, and Pilate questioned him again. Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. Now at the festival, Pilate used, used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. And Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. And Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again they shouted, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? And they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. So what we're going to see is, we're going to see just some ways not to respond, and then how we can respond instead of that. And so first we see, don't respond with unfounded fear. This is the first verse. We see the religious leaders... um, had their trial, right? They convicted Jesus of blasphemy. Um, There's a couple of issues with that in their situation. One, they're trying to get rid of Jesus. Um, First, they don't have the authority to sentence Jesus to death. Um, So they need somebody else to do that part for them. 
Um, the other challenge they have is the Romans don't care about a charge of blasphemy. They do not get into religious disputes. As long as everybody is obeying Roman rule and nobody's causing any troubles, you're fine to believe whatever you want to believe, right? And so they need something else besides blasphemy to convince Pilate, who was the Roman governor, to sentence Jesus to death. And so some of what they do in this verse shows that they're kind of trying to make Jesus look a little different than who he really is. Because if you look, it says, right, they tied him up, they, they led him away, they tied him up, and they presented him to Pilate. Now, it, it wasn't really necessary to tie Jesus up, right? If you remember, when they went to the garden and they went to arrest him, his response was basically, well, I've been in the marketplace, I've been in the city, why didn't you just arrest me there? Like, I'm here, I was around, you could have just arrested me there. And then, when one of his followers pulls out a sword and chops a guy's ear off, right, he stops him, and in one of the accounts, he heals the guy's ear. This doesn't sound like someone who's dangerous, who's trying to get out of the situation, right? And so Jesus doesn't appear to be that dangerous. Um, he's also shown no resistance no violence, really no opposition to anything they have done to him up to this point. If you remember the end of last week, um, they started slapping him and hitting him and spitting on him and saying, tell us who hit you after they blindfolded him, folded him. And he's shown no opposition to that. And so they, I, th I think they're tying Jesus up and presenting him to Pilate like Jesus is the most dangerous person in the world, right? Which he isn't in reality. But that's the concept I want us to think about. Because you may actually think or we may actually act like Jesus is the most dangerous person in the world. Because you may think, well, look at what his followers have done throughout history, right? Lots of terrible things have been done in the name of God throughout the history of our world. Or look at what his followers have done recently. Their power and influence in the world, maybe in politics or maybe in policy, May you've been, when you've been hurt by the church or you've been hurt by Christians, and so the church may seem, or Jesus, following Jesus may seem dangerous to you. But I would point out to you, none of those things are actually Jesus. All of those things are his followers, right? Then followers of Jesus may not always get it right, but that's sort of to be expected um, because we believe followers of Jesus can give in to temptation and to be pulled away from the teachings of Jesus just like anybody else. Um, not to mention, I would argue that many of those followers of Jesus who did some of these things that people complain about or point to, I would probably argue were not true followers of Jesus. And if you're not a believer and you're not convinced, I'm not going to convince you probably with those statements, and you may say, well, just telling us those, the, it was the followers and not Jesus sounds like a cop-out, right? That they can, it's not the same thing. And it might be a cop-out, but it also happens to be true, right? Our beliefs say that even though we are redeemed and made new, we are always in process and still capable of doing evil things. So if it's, those are his followers, there might be dangerous. What about Jesus himself, right? If you're not yet a believer, you may think Jesus is dangerous, because, and you may things, say things like, well, following Jesus, if I follow him, he just wants to ruin my life, right? He wants to take everything fun and everything I like away from me, and he's not going to let me do it anymore. Or if you are a believer, 
right? You may treat Jesus as dangerous and say, well, he's going to ask me to do something I don't want to do. He's going to ask me to give too much or to serve too much or to become a missionary, whether that's across the street or across the world. So those things sometimes seem dangerous to us. And I think the fact that we sometimes worry about Jesus asking us to do too much really gives us a glimpse into how deep the idol of comfort is in our lives, right? When you're worried that Jesus is going to ask you to do too much, more than you're comfortable with, right, that's a clear view that you are stuck in being comfortable, right? And so he will challenge us in that way. And so we treat him like he's dangerous sometimes. He's trouble for my life. He's going to ruin what I have going, what my plans are. He's going to ask for more, right? But that's, in reality, not really all that dangerous, right? He may, not, he may, ask us to, he may not ask you to give up any of those things that you're talking about, right? You don't know that. But if he does, I can almost guarantee you, you're not going to care, I've never heard anyone who followed God's will, followed God's plan, and gave something up that said, I really wish I hadn't have given that up, right? I've never heard anybody say that. They're like, oh, what I got is way better than what I gave up. And so we're, what, what we're afraid to lose um, is, is not that consequential. There's a, a quote, and you may have heard me use this before from C.S. Lewis, but it just made me think of this. Um, kind of this thing is of being afraid to lose something because we don't understand how great the other thing is that out, out there that God wants to give us. And so this is what he says. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so those things that we're afraid to give up, right? C.S. Lewis says it's like a kid making mud pies who can't imagine going to the beach and building an enormous sandcastle and how much better that will be and how much greater that will be and how much more joy and fun that is than what we have. And that's kind of what Jesus says to us, right? These things that you have, they're just mud pies and you don't want to let them go even though I want to give you something better. So those things, Jesus may appear dangerous in asking for those things from us, but in reality, he wants to give us something better. Next, we're going to see that we shouldn't respond to Jesus with passivity. And so this is Pilate all the way through, right? Pilate basically just wants to get rid of Jesus, but he does it in a way that kind of says over and over, I just want somebody else to solve this problem for me. I don't want to actually make a decision. I don't want to actually do something. I want somebody else to take care of it, right? We start right at the beginning in verse 2. He just straight up asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Hoping, I think, that maybe on his first question, Jesus will just admit to it and the trial will be over. And he said, oh, you're convicted of treason. And so moving on to the next thing. Um, but uh, the problem with Jesus saying he would, would be the king of the Jews is, only Caesar can be king, and anybody else who claimed to do that was guilty of treason. And so Jesus answers, you say so, um, which is sort of a yes, but what he's really saying here when he says that is, um, yes, I am, but not in the way that you think, right? They thought of king and the religious leaders as well as a political ruler, right? You rule this nation or this country or this area, but Jesus didn't come for that. 
right? He came for a kingdom that was bigger than just Israel. It was a kingdom, it would be a kingdom that was bigger than that and would transcend actually this world. The irony in what's happening in this moment is the religious leaders were upset with Jesus because he wouldn't be a political king. That's what they wanted. They wanted somebody to come and rule them and lead them to overcome the Romans. And Jesus says, I didn't come here to do that. I came here for something else. And now, when they present him to Pilate, they say, oh, he's a political king, and he came here to overthrow you, right? So they're accusing him of doing the thing that he wouldn't do that they wanted. So there's a little bit of irony in this situation. So asking Jesus straight up if he was the king of the Jews didn't work. So then Pilate tries to release a prisoner to them, right? And so we see this with Barabbas. This was a customary thing that he did around this time. He had the authority to release one prisoner. And so he thought, hey, I'll give him two choices. Of course, they'll choose Jesus over a uh, rebellious, murderous insurrectionist. They're definitely not going to choose that guy. They're going to let Jesus go, and I'll be off the hook. Well, that didn't really work either. Um, but the fact that he did this um, implies, I think, a couple of things. And if you pick up other accounts, you can build this out a little bit more. Um, one is that Pilate did not think that Jesus was guilty. Um, this is made clear in some of the other Gospels. Um, the second one is he expected the Jews to choose to release Jesus. Right? They were only envious of him, and so envy seems like a long way to go to sentencing someone to death. He just didn't think they would make the connection, but instead, they choose Barabbas. And um, here's some Bible fun for you, if you didn't already know this. Um, the name Barabbas means son of the father. Um, and so if you know parts of it, right, Jesus calls God Abba, which is father, and Bar, before anyone's name, means son of. And so Barabbas' name is Son of the Father, which is very interesting in this situation, right? The crowd says, will you release to us a Son of the Father and take away the Son of God the Father and sentence him to death? And so the Jesus, who is innocent, the innocent son of the Father, is condemned so that a guilty son of the Father can go free. But that's the exchange that Jesus makes for us, right? Because we are the guilty ones, and he is the innocent one, and he makes that exchange for us as well. He takes our place, the guilty for the innocent, so that we can have life. And so this just thing by Pilate, it doesn't work. Trying to release a prisoner doesn't work. So then um, he's like, basically, what do you want me to do with him? Right? The one you call the king of the Jews. This is where they start talking about crucifying him. And so if you read some of the other accounts of this episode, what happens here is um, in the order, you know how Mark likes to compress things because he likes to keep the action moving. Um, so the order seems to be that... They said, we want Barabbas. Pilate says, well, I'll have him flogged, and then I'll bring him back and see what they want to do. Um, and just in case you're not familiar with what flogging sounds like um, and what it looks like, what they do is they have this um, strips of leather that come off of a handle. And in the strips of leather, they tie bone or glass or rock into the ends. 
and they stand beside you, and they swing it as hard as they can, and they hit you in the back with these strips with all these things in it. And then they rip it out as hard as they can. And they don't just do this like one time. They do it over and over and over and over again. And this part is actually so bad that there are recorded evidence that people died just from the flogging. And so that's what he does to Jesus. Jesus takes that paint and then he presents him back. And he says, look, I flogged him. I punished him. Isn't that enough? Right? Can you guys, Pilate's saying, can you guys let me off the hook? I did something. I punished him. Can you just let me off the hook for this? But they keep saying, no, we want to crucify him. It's still a no. And eventually, he gives in and he hands Jesus over to be crucified because he didn't want to upset the crowd. Because if he upsets the crowd, they can send a complaint up the chain of command and he can lose his job. And so he didn't want to lose his job, so he just said, okay, I give in. I can't get out of it. There's no way for me to do this. He wasn't willing to risk something that big for Jesus, even though he seemed to think that Jesus was innocent. And so we see Pilate passively going through this situation. Right? He doesn't actually want to make a decision. He wants somebody else to solve this problem for them. He wants somebody else to do it. So the question for us is, how do we passively respond to Jesus? Right? We may say things like, if God wants me to believe in him, he'll give me a sign so big that I can't miss it. Or if we're a believer, we sometimes say the same thing. If God wants me to do that, if he wants me to follow him, if he wants me to make this sacrifice, he's going to give me a sign so big that I can't miss it. Or I'll rely on the words of others and what they say um, in the media or on TV or in podcasts instead of doing the research myself. I'll let somebody else do all of that and just listen to them. I'll be fed the word by my pastor or teachers or Bible study leaders, but not feed myself, right? I'm only taking in from other people, but not reading and learning and studying on my own. We just want somebody else to make the decision of whether we believe or not. Somebody else to step in and fill that need, to give that money, to help that person. Right? I think we react passively more often than we realize. Right? But it takes action on our part to understand Jesus and to understand who he is. Right? And so we talk about this a lot. The challenge for us is to seek on your own who Jesus is. Read the Gospels. Read the whole book of Mark. If you have questions, that's what we're here for. We're literally my job is to answer your questions when you have them, when you read the Bible. That's why I'm here. Um, it's not just to stand here on Sunday morning all the time. Like, I do that, but there's other parts of it. So come and ask questions. Read it on your own. Pray on your own. Ask God to show you on your own. Take action. But it also takes action on our part to understand what Jesus wants us to do. Right? Pray, ask, serve. Meet with others. Take that next step forward. Whatever you think it will be, it should be. God is leading you forward. Just go ahead and take that step. Take action to overcome this passivity that sometimes we respond with. Next, we see that we shouldn't respond to Jesus with mockery. And this is when we get, after Pilate says, I couldn't get out of it, he hands him over to be crucified. He hands him to the soldiers, and they lead him away. And they put him in a purple robe, and they put a crown of thorns on him, 
and they salute him, and they bow down to him, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews, which is actually a parody um, of Hail, Caesar, which is what you're supposed to say. So they're actually making fun of him using um, something they would say for Caesar. And so they do this, but in addition to that, right, they hit him, they spit on him, they make fun of him, and then eventually they rip all of those clothes off of him and take him on the next step. Now remember, he's just been flogged, and they put the robe on him and make fun of him. But everybody knows when you get cut, all of that stuff starts to dry up. And so when they pull the robe off, all of that blood that is dried is ripped off as well, which we know is painful, right? It's like ripping off a Band-Aid. It hurts. So Jesus endures that punishment again. And so they were mocking Jesus because he was claiming to be a king. Because no king would ever be in this position, the same position that Jesus is in, unless he was conquered. And their thought process was, if Jesus was truly a king, truly the son of God, then he could end this instantaneously. He could just say, it's over, I'm done, I'm more powerful than this, I can end it immediately. But instead, they mock him, because from their perspective, he obviously wasn't a true king. But then the question is, similar to the other ones, how do we mock Jesus? And if you're an unbeliever, I think some of the ways that unbelievers mock Jesus, and you may have said this even before you became a Christian, um, believing in Jesus is a crutch. Only weak people believe in this kind of stuff. It's intellectually lazy to believe what the Bible says. No intelligent person would actually believe this. Right? And as believers, it's, it's a little harder to see, but I think we actually do this sometimes too. Because remember what the soldiers were doing. They dressed him up like a king. They put him in a purple robe. They put the crown of thorns on him. They salute him. They bow down to him. And that's how you're supposed to treat a king, which is what Jesus really was. But they did it mocking him and hitting him and spitting on him. And so they were doing actually besides the treatment they gave him of hitting and all of that, all the other things they did were actually how you would treat Jesus as a king. But they were doing it in a way that went against the reality of who Jesus was. Right? So how do we do that? How do we understand who Jesus is but treat him in a way that goes against who he really is? I think one of the ways we do that is what we would know as lip service. Right? We'll say we'll follow Or we say, God, if you just get me through this situation, if you just answer my prayer, then I'll serve or I'll go or I'll give or I'll do this thing. And then things get better and we go back on our promise. Or we say we believe in Jesus, but our actions are inconsistent with that. We decide, hey, some of these commands that I read in the Bible, they're old-fashioned. I don't need to follow them anymore. Or they're not for me right? I've advanced to a level of being a Christian that these commands are for somebody else. These aren't for me. I don't need to follow those. And so we end up doing what we want. But both of those, in a sense, make a mockery of Jesus and his commands, right? In both of those, you're basically just using Jesus to get what you want. 
or to elevate yourself over his commands by choosing what you do and what you won't, which means I'm in authority over Jesus. And so we would say he's in authority, but we act differently in real life, which is technically making a mockery of him. And so our response is to take Jesus seriously. Even if you're not a believer, you can still take him seriously and do research and look into who he is and talk to real Christians and not just trust what you hear on TV or in the media or whatever else. And as believers, we can take him at his word for who he is, that he does love us and he cares for us and he died for us and he wants to give us something better. And we can trust in him. So now that we see what not to do, I want to end with how, what we should do, right? We should respond to Jesus with courage. Because we've seen all the way through this account of Jesus being arrested and going to the cross. We've seen the disciples, right? They had trouble. They ran away. They lacked the courage to stick with Jesus in hard times. The religious leaders couldn't see past their own envy and position, Pilate didn't have the courage to do what was right and clear Jesus of the charges, even though he thought he was innocent. But I get it, because it's, it's hard to respond to Jesus with courage. And I, I think for a couple of reasons just that I thought of this week. One is, your group, your friends, your circle is actually keeping you where you are. And here's what I mean by that. If you're a non-believer, I would guess most likely most of your other friends are also non-believers. And so you're going to do what they do. And it's really hard to do something outside of what that group normally does. Because to leave means you may not have friends. They may make fun of you. They may laugh at you. They may not like what you're doing. But I think we don't just do that as non-believers. I think we actually also do that in the church. Because I've been in a lot of churches, and I think we all kind of know this intuitively, but we maybe don't talk about it. There's like levels of people in the church, right? There's the people that just show up on Sunday, and that's about all they do. And there's a group of them, and there's the people that come Sunday and Wednesday, and there's the people that go above that, and they're reading their Bibles daily, and they're praying daily, and they're doing more, and then there's leadership who are doing more. And so we even have these levels as Christians of what we actually do. And I think what we do is we find kind of where our level is, and we jump in with that group. But it, once you do that, it's actually really hard to say, well, I think God is calling me to do more, so I'm going to move up to the next level. Because it's the same fears, right? What are people going to say if I do that? It's going to be hard. It's unsure. And so being with other people as believers is great. It's what we're supposed to do. But I think sometimes that actually hinders us from doing some things that we know we should be doing because we don't know how our group will respond. And so it takes courage to move past that level, past that group, to do the thing that God is asking you to do. The beauty is, if the church operates the way that it should, I think we'll still have levels. But our job is actually to encourage people to keep moving up to the next level, whether we're ready to do that or not. 
Our job is to say, hey, this is what I see in you. These are the gifts I see. These are the talents I see. You should be doing more. You should do this. I think God is asking you to do this and to encourage them. Right? We want people to do more for Christ. Even if that blows up our group of friends or makes us uncomfortable, it makes us realize, oh, if they're doing more, maybe I should be doing more. Right? Sometimes the people around us keep us where we are, and it takes courage to break through that. There's pressure to stay the same, to do the same things, to not be uncomfortable, to not rock the boat. The other part of this is, I think our culture is pushing against it as well. Right? It's hard to step out. It's hard to be different. I think that's only going to be harder um, because we are moving more and more quickly to what we are, I think, well, what people are calling a post-Christian culture. That a lot of people who are growing up now have no concept of the church, have no concept of who Jesus is, none of that stuff. Where people my age and older, there's at least some baseline of pe- most people have been to church, most people know who Jesus is, that kind of thing. But we're moving past that rapidly. And there's some good and bad to that, I think. But in response to that, I think that doesn't mean that we judge and we fight people that don't know or that the culture is changing. But I think we can accept people who think differently and don't have the same experiences or baseline knowledge of us of Scripture and the Bible, but we can still stand firm on what we believe. Because one of the things is when you're talking to someone who has a background in Christianity or with the church, a lot of the reasons they don't want to follow him is because of the baggage. Maybe someone hurt them or their family did something um, or the church hurt them. But if people have no experience of that, you actually get to skip all of that, which I think is a blessing because then you can just go straight to Jesus and say, look at what Jesus can give you. And it makes it easier to take that step. So us getting to this point isn't all bad. I think there's going to be some good that comes with it. When I thought about this, just, man, it takes courage to step out. It takes courage to stand up for what you believe in this time. But it reminded me of the verse, right? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power and of love and of sound judgment, or your version may have self-control or discipline, right? He doesn't give us a spirit of fear to be afraid to take the next step, to move out of our comfort zone, to move up a level, to do more, to ask what he, what, more, what he wants you to do that is more than what you're currently doing, right? Sometimes that's a dangerous question that we don't want to ask, right? What else do you want me to be doing? What step do you want me to take next? We're afraid to do that, but we can have courage because what Christ has done for us, right? If we believe He went to the cross, and we're talking about that the next three weeks. Like this week, we saw the beginning of what they began to do to him with the flogging, and next week, we're going to see the rest. He did all of that for us, not because we were great, not because we were innocent, but because we were guilty, and we were sinners, and he stood in the place for us, and he took the flogging, and he took the mocking and the spitting and all of those things for us so that we could be declared innocent as we trust in him and what he did on the cross, that he stood in our place and took the punishment so that we wouldn't have to take it, so that we could be free. 
And if we believe in him and trust in him and then give our lives over to him, he frees us from fear. We don't have to be afraid anymore. That's what he calls us to do. He frees us from the hold of the world. Right? We realize the things that we're worried about, the things that we're concerned about, are not as important as we think they are. What people think of us, our jobs, our positions, our belongings, none of those things are really as important as we sometimes think they are. He frees us for something better. Right? Building sandcastles instead of mud pies. He frees us for something better. And so as we wrap up, the, the, the question I want you to think about this week is this. What courageous thing is Jesus asking you to do? What's the thing he's saying, I think you should do this, or I want you to take this next step, next step or I want you to talk to this person, or serve this person, or give this, or fill this need? What's the thing he's asking you to do that you're afraid to do? That's what I want you to think about this week. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you even sometimes for bad examples of what to do. Because that helps us to see and avoid mistakes that we would make. So God, we pray that you would ask us not to be afraid, not to think that you're dangerous, not to be passive, but to actively seek you to actively ask what you want us to do, to actively search out your word and in prayer and through the scriptures so that we know what you are calling us to do and to take that step. And as a body, that we would encourage people to do that, that we would have spiritual conversations among our members that tell us and encourage us and help us to see how you could use us and how we can move forward and how we can serve you and reach others so that we not so we can be great but so that we can see your name glorified so that we can see your reputation grow so god help us to have courage courage to ask questions of other people and in prayer that maybe we're afraid to ask because we don't want to know the answers help us to have courage to act on our faith help us have courage to step out Help us have courage to break free of the barriers, maybe of our group or our friends or whatever it is that's holding us back. You would give us the courage to overcome because you promise to give us that. You're working in us. So help us have the courage to seek you fully. It's in your name I pray. Amen.